Hello, ladies, gentlemen, and otherwise. This is Mike. I am one of the hosts of My Favorite Malady. Before we begin, I just wanted to say that though my co-host Nancy and I do our best to give you the best information that we can, neither she nor I are doctors or nurses or any kind of currently licensed medical professional. We hope to educate and entertain in equal measure, but please don't take anything we say in this podcast as a substitute for speaking to your own doctor. If you have any specific medical questions about your situation, talk to your doctor. They're going to give you better answers than we possibly could. Welcome to My Favorite Malady, a medical history podcast out of the Mütter Museum. I'm Nancy Hill, museum manager, and I'm here with my fellow science goth. Hi, I'm Mike. On this podcast, we're going to be talking about our favorite medical stuff, incidents, events, people, and so on. There's a whole world of interesting stuff out there, and we want to talk about them in a fun, casual format. We do, however, want to make sure that our listeners understand that we're not mocking these people or events. We're not being mean about them. Rather, because the topics are often very dark, we have to balance that with dark humor. And we're talking about these things not because we think that they're funny, uh, but because we think they're significant and we want to share our knowledge with you. Just a heads up, if we swear, we will censor it out. Uh, In general, we're going to try to keep things PG in terms of language. However, some of the subjects we discuss may be disturbing to some people. We may talk about sexual health. We may talk about violence. This one, this particular episode, at least my half, will get pretty dark in spots. So this may not be suitable for children, depending on your child. Parental discretion, I guess, is the watchword. So that said, why don't we just jump right into it? Nancy, I went for, well, I didn't go first last week, but my colleague, uh, Professor Marsha Nichols, went first last week. So then what is your favorite malady this fortnight? So my weird. <laughs> what is your favorite malady this two weeks? I don't know. This fortnight, my favorite malady is Fosse Jaw. It's Fosse Jaw. Fosse, uh, like Bob Fosse? It's, no, but I'll, we'll, I will explain in depth for you what Fosse Jaw is and what it means. Okay. Something that we're probably going to talk a lot about on this podcast and people will get used to hearing is that factory workers in the 19th and early 20th centuries had a real rough go of it. Uh, There's certainly still a lot of very dangerous jobs today, but the concept of workers' rights is more widely accepted and child labor is no longer a thing, at least here in the West. But, you know, how did did we get there? in here in the U.S. and also in the U.K., we have a group of workers who are mostly women and girls, some of whom were as young as 12 years old, to partially to thank for that kind of labor's rights and uh, workplace safety uh, awareness. And they went on strike after a terrifying illness started to impact them and their colleagues. So quick history of matches. Yes, matches. They have existed since at least the 6th century in northern China, but they rose to more common use in the West starting in the 1820s. Uh, The first phosphorus match is thought to have been created by a Dr. Charles Sauria of St. Lothair, France. Dr. Sauria made his phosphorus tip matches late in 1830 with a formula that's basically the same as a brand called Lucifer's, badass name for some matches. But his, his formula was basically the same as those Lucifer's except that he used white phosphorus instead of uh, antimony sulfide. 
So these white phosphorus matches were uh, quote unquote strike anywhere matches, meaning that any kind of friction would ignite them, not specifically the strip on the box or anything. I miss those because those became much, much, much harder to get after 9-11. I used to use strike anywhere almost exclusively. For a quick summary of how matches work is that the friction would ignite the, the in this old version, the white phosphorus, which would then burn the sulfur which would then catch to the wood stick. So it's kind of like a chain of, of ignition to a fuel point to make sure that you have time to light whatever it is you need to light. Makes sense? Yeah. Okay, and I'm, I'm kind of flying through this. I, I did get, get down a weird... I spoke last week about how I'm not the best kind of chemistry communicator, but that's something that I do want to work on. So I ended up down a really long rabbit hole about uh, match match chemistry and... <laughs> Many different types of matches have exist, but I digress. So a few quick facts about white phosphorus from the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control here in the U.S. And I'm just going to kind of directly read uh, their information about white phosphorus and handling it and all of that good stuff. And so to dive in. White phosphorus is a toxic substance produced from phosphate-containing rocks. It is extremely flammable and will spontaneously ignite if exposed to air at approximately 86 degrees Fahrenheit or 30 degrees Celsius in air. The ignition temperature is higher when the air is dry. White phosphorus can be absorbed into the body by inhalation, ingestion, or skin contact. It is unknown whether systemic exposure can occur from eye contact. White phosphorus fumes can cause severe irritation and the sensation of a foreign body in the eye. This leads to excessive tear production, spasmodic blinking, and increased sensitivity to light. White phosphorus particles are caustic and seriously damaging when in contact with tissues. They cause damage to the cornea, including perforation, inflammation of the interior of the eyeball, and abnormal turning out of the eyelid. On ingestion exposure, Stage one will be feeling of warmth or burning pain in the throat and abdomen accompanied by feelings of intense thirst, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and severe abdominal pain, a garlic odor to the breath, vomitus and feces. Vomitus and feces may glow and are capable of causing burns on contact with skin. Back up. They occur within 24 to 48 hours due to complete cardiovascular collapse. No, you can't. You can't just skip the part about your your vomit and feces glowing. Oh, we're gonna we're we're going. We're gonna get to it. Believe okay. me. Okay. That's, that's a big part of this story. I'll hold on. <laughs> okay. Moving on. Inhalation exposure. I end up a respiratory tract irritation should be expected. Delayed onset of accumulation of fluid in the lungs, that's a pulmonary edema, is possible. Whole body systemic effects may occur also. And then skin exposure, white phosphorus causes severely painful partial to full thickness burns, which is second to third degree burns, which have a characteristic yellow color and garlic-like odor. Smoke may be released from burn site from the continued burning of white phosphorus or the formation of, phosph of phosphoric acid. White phosphorus is highly fat-soluble and easily absorbed through the skin, possibly causing whole-body effects. So the CDC is not playing any, any games when it comes to white phosphorus. They want you to know that this is some nasty stuff. So why am I telling you all of this about white phosphorus and matches? To create and manufacture matches, matches in the 1830s, those wood sticks had to be manually dipped into a slurry of all those chemicals that I described by workers. 
most of those workers, it's, this was kind of an unusual industry in that most of those workers were women. There were definitely men who worked there, but young women and girls in particular, as we, you know, most of them were Irish immigrants to the UK. So they had to dip these sticks in manually, both ends. They were dried, cut in half to create those single matches, and then boxed up manually. So people in these factories often worked 14-hour days, and they were not provided a separate area in which to eat their lunches. So they ate standing at their workstations in front of this slurry of you know, sulfur and white phosphorus and other things. But it smelled great. Yes, it smelled just, was anyone who's never sm s smelled just straight sulfur, it smells like, like egg farts, kind of, you know? <laughs> yeah, it does. Uh, I, I personally, I was handling a rock collection that was, that my partner, this is a long story, I was handling a rock collection and I had a large chunk of sulfur in my hands, which was a bad idea because then my hands smelled like egg farts for like two days. So Delicious. don't handle chunks of sulfur without gloves on unless you want your hands to smell like egg farts, I guess. But the sulfur wasn't the problem. It's tra traveling back in time. We're working in the match factory. There is phosphorus dust in the air that's settling on your skin and your clothes. It's getting in your eyes and you're inhaling it as both particles and vapors because you're standing over this vat, you know, dipping your sticks in or whatever. And you're eating in this environment, so you're, eat, you're ingesting the phosphorus dust as well. Pretty quickly, this exposure started to have its effects at a particular factory called the Bryant and May factory, which was established in 1843. It was said that the streets around this factory were dotted with puddles of vomit that glowed in the dark from workers being sick on their way home from work. That sounds bad. You know, you're leaving after a 14-hour day and you're vomiting in the street on your way home and the vomit is glowing in the dark. Yeah. It, it gets so much worse. Well, that sounds like a science fiction thing, honestly. Like if you wrote a science fiction story about some alien illness that made you throw up glowing vomit, people would be like, oh, that sounds pretty far-fetched. And yet, yeah, I, what you're saying is... White phosphorus will do that. There's actually the a number thing. of elements that will uh, cause your tissues and secretions to glow. Part, mm. part of why I got into, I got interested in bossy jaw was that I was actually initially doing research for about radium and radium poisoning. And there's another set of young industrial, uh, industrially employed women, I guess I should say, who had an experience with radium. Maybe we'll talk about it later on a later date of this podcast. But when I looked in the collection to see if we had any uh, examples of radium jaw, we didn't, but we had a number of examples of fossy jaw, which... Um, was kind of earlier uh, industrial illness to radium jaw and radium jaw was initially misdiagnosed as fossy jaws. So this is kind of the original uh, horrifying industrial illness. The OG. Yeah, which it sounds like it's a point of pride, but it's, it's, it's awful. Uh, fossy jaw or phosphorus necrosis of the jaw is slash was an industrial disease that's caused by exposure to white phosphorus specifically vapors of white phosphorus. And the first case of this was identified by a physician in Vienna in 1839. This factory kind of opened in 1843. So just right before this factory opened, did, did doctors even start to know that this was a thing that could happen? Mm -hmm. So 
starts with persistent toothaches and a swelling of the gums, that persistent irritation of the oral mucosa, which is, you know, the extremely vascular tissue inside your mouth would result in pus secretion, which would eventually progress into abscesses that just never ended. Abscesses are, you know, big, big old pockets of pus and they don't smell very good. And when you add that phosphorus and sulfur already don't smell very good. So these abscesses had a distinctive and disgusting smell. Your breath in particular would smell awful. And this led to kind of social isolation. And, you know, people don't want to be stinky around stinky mouth lady. Uh, Are you, is this, is this you making fun of your sister again? No, no. Her breath was not nearly as bad as, as, as Fossey jaw. I mean, this it, it it's really truly awful. She didn't have a big old pus hole in her face or anything like that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Dream big. I guess she could get there one day. <laughs> if we can find but, some white phosphorus for her, sure. Oh God, no! I, I will I will slap any anyone who comes near my baby sister with white phosphorus. The other way that this could enter the body, which was actually so much worse, was if you had any dental cavities, the white phosphorus could get directly into your teeth oh, through, no. the, through those cavities and much more quickly enter the jawbone. And so once you had the fossy jaw and the kind of toothaches and abscesses beginning, your teeth would start to loosen and fall out as the necrosis. And again, we, we mentioned this in an earlier episode, but necrosis is just cell death. So it's basically tissues just dying and fall, disintegrating and falling off. So as the necrosis reached the jawbone, whole sections of the bone would die and disconnect from the living tissues. Those removed bone fragments were also said to glow in the dark. And this most often affected the lower jaw and would leave patients permanently disfigured. And, they, and if they survived, which, you know, again, we talked about the smell being socially scarring. If you're disfigured in the face in the 1840s, you are also going to be socially ostracized and have a much harder time, you know, finding employment, finding friends, finding a family, things like that. And that's the best case scenario, assuming you survived. Brian and May, uh, once the workers started to get those toothaches, would encourage them to have all their teeth pulled out at the first, basically the first sign of fossey jaw. They would Sorry. say, "Who, who would?" The employee, the owners of this factory. Gotcha. I you said... to be, this is a specific factory. This company actually had two, but I'm okay. speaking specifically about one that was in, in the East end of London. Cause it sounded like you said, Brian May, who is the guitarist and queen and one of my personal heroes. Oh no. B R Y A N T and may. And they would encourage their employees to have their teeth pulled as, at the first sign of Fosse job. And they actually fired a pregnant woman who refused to have her teeth pulled because she was worried about uh, the procedure having an impact on her pregnancy. So they fired her. She maybe didn't realize it or feel this at the time, but they did her a big favor. So you might be asking, why, why use white phosphorus? It's not something that we use today. Like why, why the commitment so much so that you, you knew this was happening enough to advise your employees to have their teeth pulled, right? Uh, the simple answer is typical late capitalism. Red phosphorus was discovered in the 1840s. It's much safer they knew that everybody knew that pretty quickly, but it's much more expensive. So they stuck with the white phosphorus. Michael's like, what the hell, Nancy? This is the worst. 
No, no, no. Um, I mean, we're a medical history podcast. There aren't a lot of like really feel good <laughs> maladies out there. Yeah. I mean, Everything this is we talk definitely, about I wouldn't say it's a feel good story. There's definitely kind of a good victorious arc and a good outcome in that we definitely no longer use white phosphorus today. And I'll get into that a little bit. Basically, these the white phosphorus was kind of one of many problems and it was sort of the least of their problems at first. Uh, there was also the pay at this factory was extremely poor. They made four shillings a week, which in today's money is $27.71. And again, those are, that's 14-hour days they're working in that factory. So it's not even just as regular eight-hour shift. They're still making, making that little for 14-hour shifts. Uh, they were also being fined frivolously by their employers so that most of their paycheck didn't even make it to them. Uh, they would get fined for things like, you know, things that are reasonable, like showing up late, but they would also be fined for talking too little, talking too much, you know, sure. the most minor and subjective infractions they would get fined for and lose a portion of their paycheck. And in 1882, one shilling was deducted from every single worker's pay so that Theodore Bryant, one of the owners of the factories, could put up a statue of his personal hero, William Gladstone. So... That was kind of the breaking point when he was like, ladies, I don't make enough money off of you already. I'm going to force you all to chip in for a statue of my personal hero. Order of your weekly income. Yeah, right? I would not be pleased either. And so in 1888, Annie Besant, who was a social activist, and she, she had her own newspaper, and she basically wrote a lot about social issues, she wrote about the plight of the workers in the matchstick factories in her paper. In response, Bryant and May tried to force all of their workers to sign kind of like an NDA, but it was basically they, they wanted them to sign a document that said they were happy with their workplace, everything was fine. And they refused, thankfully. And instead, they went directly to Besson, who wrote the article about them for help. And this woman, being kind of a social activist, helps them form a union. And she helped them go on what was the fourth strike in the match factory's history, but it was the first successful strike. And so this, this strike, it went on for about three weeks before they, their demands were met. And so they won better pay. They, they suspended the fining system. They, so they were not fined for infractions at work. They got a separate place to eat their lunches. And, you know, this was kind of a major event in history of workers' rights, A, because this was just an industrial strike that worked, and B, because it was an industrial strike by a workforce of mostly women. And so this strike was definitely a victory, but the white phosphorus was still in use in the factory until 1901. It was banned in matches in 1910. So for context, Finland was the first to ban it in 1872, and it was not banned in the UK until 1910. So in the US, I looked at it, the US, it's, it's not legal for use in matches anymore, but our laws are not quite as cut and dry. Uh, so there's very strict restrictions about what it can be used for, but white phosphorus is still legal for industrial use in the US. But we have things like OSHA, uh, compliance and the CDC today that help keep people safe. But I, I could not find a kind of cut and dry date for when it was no longer legal for matches in the U.S. Interesting. Well, I know the U.S. uses it in military applications. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, white phosphorus is definitely like, it has a lot of chemical applications. And I think that's why the U.S. Uh, legal coding is not quite as transparent as other 
Western nations were, but so today only safe red phosphorus is used in matches and it's not actually on the match stick. It's on the striking surface on the box. You know, the little red dots or the little red line. That's red phosphorus. And that's what ignites your sulfur-based matchstick. Interesting. Yeah. And again, red phosphorus, white phosphorus turns into red phosphorus over time. Uh, and it, you can accelerate the transition by applying gentle heat. Obviously, you have to be kind of careful with that because uh, white phosphorus will ignite when exposed to oxygen at 86 degrees. So it's kind of a, a process, but there's, I guess what, what struck me is that if you have white phosphorus, you can make it into red phosphorus. It's just right. an additional cost. So right. the only reason that these people had to continue to suffer was money. And so I wish I could say that this was the last common and, and disfiguring industrialness in Western history, but it is... Very far from it. Oh, uh, coal miners. Yeah, I mean, we got coal miners, we got radium girls, we got munitions workers. There has been a lot of industrial injury and illness in the West and all over the world. There still is. There still is know. a ton, yeah. When you think yeah. about, I mean, the, ban the, the garment factory building collapse in Bangladesh a few years ago, you know, that's an industrial injury. Those women were industrial workers and their safety was not a priority. So anyone who is listening to this and might be an industrial worker, I would, we wanna encourage you to check out the local CDC and OSHA guidelines for your industry and make sure that your workplace is up to code, your safety procedures are up to snuff and don't hesitate to blow the whistle because you could be saving lives. I know that it's a scary thing, but, but if you are working in a factory and you have safety concerns, I mean, I know it could be easy to say it's, it's not that bad or we don't really know what's going on. But the thing is, you, you don't know what's going on. This could be something that could be affecting you for the rest of your life. And so definitely, if you work in an industrial setting, check out the CDC website, check out OSHA guidelines and make sure that you and your colleagues are safe. So not to spoil anything, but next episode, I was actually going to do an industrial disease as well. Yes. So I've been doing a lot of reading on this and the history of what used to be called industrial medicine is now called occupational medicine, which is a subsection of preventive medicine, is fascinating and it's a living history in that it's still ongoing. There's still so much stuff to, to look at and talk about. My next episode will not be on a mouth stuff, so we can take a break from that, yes. uh, but it is going to be about an industrial disease as well. Uh, I think in Britain, it might still be called industrial disease or industrial medicine, and here in the U.S., it's uh, occupational is yes. what they tend to call it, but uh, honestly, same difference. Uh, here's a little, a little morsel of music history for you. We can thank an industrial injury for the invention <laughs> of heavy metal, which sounds terrible, but the guitarist of Black Sabbath uh, worked in a sheet metal factory, and a sheet of metal took off the tips of his fingers, so he had to tune his guitar extra loose mm -hmm. uh, because the tips of his little fingers had gotten chopped off. Thus, the distinctive sound was born. I don't want to condone getting your fingers chopped off at your workplace, though this one cool thing did come out of it. So that. We thank him for his sacrifice. I think, yes, we, we sacrificed the tips of his fingers to Satan and heavy metal was born. <laughs> Um, yeah, did you have any questions for me about 
fossy jaw. Let me ask you this. Do we have any specimens of fossil, like physical, not just photographs, but physical specimens we do. of fossy jaw? We do. We have at least three in the collection, and I was looking at them last week. So I, I think they, I have not turned off the light. I don't think so. The phosphorus, is, I think it kind of it transitions into yellow phosphorus and then red phosphorus pretty quickly. So right. I would be interested to see what the phosphorus uh like if the phosphorus is still present in the bone all these years later, or if the phosphorus kind of stays in the necrotized section that fall out. Oh, well, I, I imagine, so white phosphorus isn't particularly chemically stable. As you say, it does decay yeah. uh, under most conditions well, and turn into red phosphorus. But you know, there are four allotypes of phosphorus common, and it's uh, uh, white, red, violet, and black are the four phosphoruses that you typically, mm-hmm. there's more than those four, but those are the four yeah. that you, you usually see. And black is very stable, and I think violet is really stable as well. So I wonder if you'd see any of those. I don't remember under like, like I don't remember. I don't know why, if we like, have the provenance of what industry these people worked in for the the, mm. the fossy jaw specimens in the collection. I have not seen any mention of uh, what industry these people worked in specifically, right. but I think it could be interesting because obviously you use black and violet uh, phosphorus for different things, and you would use white phosphorus for. Yeah. Um, so I, I I only looked up this specific information for the one Fossey jaw that I'm going to be using for a pop-up this month, but oh. I, I'll have to check uh, the workflows for the other ones to see what kind of provenance we have about the individuals because it would be it would be good to know what kind of industry they worked in that that left them in such a condition. Well, it absolutely would, yeah. Uh, otherwise, no, I don't. I guess I don't really have any questions yet. I know that there is an ongoing issue with the U.S. military's use of phosphorus munitions and then phosphorus exposure to the people yeah. in the area where they use them. Great. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, that's a whole thing that's, as far as I know, it's been going on since phosphorus started being used in munitions, which is probably the 20th century, maybe yeah. even earlier. I get a lot of, <laughs> this is a whole other tangent, but I get a lot of ads for, on Instagram for uh, landmine sniffing rats. I don't know if you've heard about these. Maybe we should do an episode on them. I, I know what they are, but why are you getting ads for them? Well, you can you can sponsor a mind detecting rat. You can also sponsor a tuberculosis detecting rat, and it's the same type of rat. They can just be trained to detect different things, which is amazing. And also, these rats are really huge, and they put yeah. them in little harnesses and walk them around. It's delightful. Gambian um, pouched rats. I'm pretty sure is the name of the species. That's the story of a fossy jaw or phosphorus necrosis of the jaw. It's my favorite malady this week. Mike, what's yours? Well, my favorite malady this week is not a malady per se. I want to talk about a specific physician, an American physician from the middle of the 20th century. His name was Robert Galbraith Heath. But before I begin, gosh, this is a pretty heavy one. And I just want to warn people, we're going to be talking about very unethical experimentation. We're going to be talking about overt racism. And also this gets into uh, human sexuality, homosexuality, and transsexuality. You know, especially if you look at it from today's standards, it's going to be pretty barbaric. So just fair warning, this one gets unpleasant. Ooh. Yeah. I've talked before about how the history of medicine is the history of racism. And boy, it's it's really apparent in this one, too. I, you know, I didn't actually set out to tell uh, another story about medical racism, but it's really difficult to avoid. Oh, it's something that I always tell museum visitors is that physicians are a product of the culture in which they exist. And 
our Western culture has had some not so nice takes on people of color and people with, uh, you know, different gender identities and different sexualities. So it's, as I know that some people are probably going to say, wow, you're talking about racism again, but unfortunately medicine doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists in the dominant cultures of the physicians we discuss. And yeah. unfortunately it kind of comes with the territory. Yeah, and I honestly did not know the story really had like deep racial implications until I got about halfway through it and I said to myself, well, the people that were unhappy that I talked about racism in episode one are going to be super triple unhappy when I talk about racism in this episode because yeah. so be it. It is what it is. So Robert Galbraith Heath was a psychiatrist and neurologist in the mid-20th century. He was born in Pittsburgh in 1915. And he was, by all accounts, he was apparently extremely handsome. He was deeply charismatic. He was described as looking like a god by his, some of his uh, female colleagues. He was a, a certified and licensed psychoanalyst, as well as being board certified in both psychiatry and neurology, which if you're not a doctor, that's like three different things. He had three different, very difficult jobs all at the same time, right? Yeah. He was also wildly prolific. He, he published hundreds and hundreds of medical papers in his time. As someone who was bullied in high school, I already don't trust this man. <laughs> right, right. Anytime you're like, oh, he looked like a god and he was great at sports, I'm just kind of like, suspicious. <laughs> Point is, so he was from Pittsburgh originally. He was a neurologist originally then. He was in World War II and he decided to be a psychiatrist in World War II because he needed psychiatrists more than psychologists. Now, he was a big proponent of a theory that now we know to be mostly true. And here's another thing. Yes, he got a lot of things wrong, but he was a brilliant man, and he also got a lot of things right. And though he was deeply unethical in a lot of ways and just terribly wrong in a lot of ways, he was also way ahead of his time in others. So he believed in what they at the time called biological psychiatry, which posited that psychiatric illnesses were mostly organic illnesses or malformations in the brain and were not like emotional or psychological in nature, right? Huh. Now, nowadays we know that that's true. Nowadays we know that schizophrenia, for example, is either a chemical imbalance or a physical malformation in the brain. People disagree. But the point is that it's a biological cause. Now at the time in the first half of the 20th century, they didn't know these things. Many thought at the time that most psychiatric illnesses could be traced to an emotional disturbance, early childhood events, there is idea that if you were schizophrenic, you had a, a schizotype mother. And because your mother was weird, you would just develop schizophrenia spontaneously. Dads couldn't cause schizophrenia? No, it was women are evil. Women is the most fiendish instrument of torture ever devised to bedevil the days of man. Yes, uh, yeah. I guess, excuse me, I forgot. Yeah, yeah. So there was a lot of belief in the emotional theory of psychiatry, I guess you'd say. And this guy, uh, Galbraith Heath, he went the other way. He said, no, it's biological, it's physical. He was a big fan of uh, psychosurgery, which we don't do very much of today, but was a huge deal. The lobotomy was one of the most popular psychosurgical procedures. Basically, you, you poke and cut at the brain until the disease goes away. I was going right. to say, I was hoping that this wasn't going to get into a lobotomy territory. It's not, because he was against lobotomies. He thought lobotomies were like barbaric. He liked topectomy, which mm -hmm. involved not just like slamming an ice pick into your brain, but actually targeted removal of uh, small areas of the, the cortex to sort of to minimize damage to the rest of the brain. 
But he realized that schizophrenia was cured by neither lobotomy nor tepectomy. So his idea was, well, it can't be in the cortex. It's got to be in other parts of the brain. But he became obsessed with this part of the brain called the septal region. It's part of the subcortex. In other words, it's, it's deep inside the brain. It's, it's almost like right at the center of the brain. So he thought that this was where all the emotions lived to a large degree. He thought this is where the pleasure lived to a large degree. And he thought the disturbance in the septal region caused schizophrenia. And so he thought that if the septal region uh, went bad, it could cause a variety of mental illnesses. So he started out experimenting with animals, like you do, and he discovered that in, I think, cats or monkeys, that if you damage a septal region of the brain, the monkeys became anhedonic, which means they could not experience joy or pleasure or happiness. I'm going to go ahead um, and cover my cat's ears for this. And in general, they became disconnected from reality. They became unemotional in many ways, replicating what schizophrenia is like. So he theorized that if we can fix this section of the brain or stimulate it somehow, we can cure schizophrenia. Here's the problem is nobody wanted to give him any money to experiment on humans. You might think, is it because they really deeply cared about the welfare of experimental subjects? And at the time, no, not really. This was of the 40s and 50s and 60s. But it was really expensive and an unproven theory is really what it came down to. And so most of the places where he went, most of the colleges that he went were like, well, we don't want to pay for this because it probably won't work. And it's going to cost a lot of money to find these people and clear them and then do the surgeries. So he basically shopped around until he found a medical school that would back his theories and give him access to funds and most importantly, experimental subjects. So he wound up in Louisiana, in Tulane, because in Louisiana, in New Orleans, there was the charity hospital, which was exactly what it sounds like, the hospital for if you couldn't pay for medical care, the charity hospital would take care of you. And so as he put it, there was a tremendous amount of clinical material in that hospital. In other words, plenty of people that were poor and mentally ill that he could experiment on. Yeah. And because... New Orleans and Tulane University was at the time kind of a medical backwater. Apologies. It's much better now, I'm told. Tulane's pretty prestigious now. It is pretty prestigious now. At the time, it was not. And so he was like a kind of a big deal, this genius, handsome uh, northerner with all these great ideas about how to cure these incurable diseases. And so they just gave him a ton of money and let him do more or less whatever he wants. Not just the charity hospital, but overall in the Louisiana mental health system. And eventually in Louisiana criminal justice system as well. Oh, no. This is all going poorly. It's going very poorly. So not only the the charity hospital, but a bunch of other hospitals, including the VA center, let him just basically have his pick of the patients. He could just show up, take whoever he wanted, and jam stuff into their brain. It's not quite that simple, but it's almost quite that simple. And eventually, he got tired of the fact that he only had access to sick people. He said, we also need to experiment on healthy people. And so he got access to the prisoners of the state prison at Angola. If you're not familiar with Angola, it is the Louisiana State Prison. And it is, and I don't think this is a very controversial thing to say, at least in my circles, but it is the closest thing to a slave plantation that still exists today. It is overwhelmingly minority, black mostly. Because of Louisiana's draconian sentencing laws, a large proportion of the inmates have life sentences and no chance of parole. And it is a institution that uses inmate labor for a lot of things and rents out inmates to businesses and governmental entities in the state of Louisiana to work for pennies on the dollar. Because 
inmates don't have minimum wage restriction laws. So you can pay an inmate, you know, 30 cents an hour instead of whatever the, the, the minimum wage is in your, in your area. And that is 100% legal because the constitutional prohibition against slavery does not apply to prison inmates. So you can still legally enslave prison inmates in America. Legal scholars will quibble about my phrasing, but the fact is you can pay them pennies to do backbreaking labor, and they really have very little choice in the matter. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a whole other can of worms, but that it's also oh. worth noting that this uh, legal precedent was set suspiciously close or suspiciously shortly after uh, the Emancipation Proclamation as well. It's not, it's not off topic at all. We're going to totally get into that because okay. it is a big part of the story. Yeah. Uh, I have so a yeah, lot of so, rage about the prison industrial complex. For so, sure. I and so feeling I'm about to get even more mad. Yes. So his area of research, well, he was a polymath, so he had actually a lot of different areas of research. But <laughs> the brain stuff that he did was... He eventually settled on implanting electrodes into people's brains, so basically a Teflon-coated stainless steel spike, jamming it into people's brains, into the septal region of the brain, and then zapping it with electricity. I don't like this at all. This was his, mm -hmm. like, obs obsession throughout his entire life. Uh, he did a bunch of other people? stuff, too. Not at well. Yeah, I guess technically electrocuting people, electrocuting their brains, basically sending electrical impulses into their brains. I, I guess I'm kind of like, how comparable would this experience have been for patients to kind of the more commonly uh, understood shock therapy that was going on at this time? Uh, so shock therapy was not, the, it's comparable, all right? Shock therapy, people thought at first that you'd have to apply shock to the entire nervous system. Um, and nowadays, uh, Brain stimulation through electricity is still done. So shock therapy, they don't call it that anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, it's called ECT, electroconvulsive therapy. It's still performed today in very limited circumstances. And it actually does work in very limited circumstances for very limited uh, mental illnesses. I think yeah. deep intractable depression is one. It actually does have positive effects. I, I guess I'm just curious what the patient experience was for this type of kind of like brain-specific uh, electrical therapy. Like oh, uh, they... They put you under anesthesia, drill a hole in your brain, jam a spike in there. Sometimes they jam as many as 12 spikes in there through 12 different holes. Goodness. And then uh, they let you heal up, but the spikes are still in your brain. Yeah, that was a patient experience. Uh, and then uh, every now and then doctors would hook a box to the exposed outside of your skull parts of these spikes. Oh. And then push electricity through it. And eventually, he started giving patients the ability to zap themselves. So he gave you just a box with a button on it, like a trigger, and you push the button and you just zap your own brain with electricity. I have so many questions about infection risk with this, but I'm not oh, going to... No, super high. Plenty of his patients died from brain abscesses and infection. I was, yeah, I was going to say. Very high. As many, uh, as many as 12 openings in the skull with a foreign object that extends out of the skull and inside the brain sounds like a bad idea to me. I'm not a doctor and I'm not extremely handsome as a doctor, but... right. Uh, in, so I, I don't have numbers on all of his experiments, but I do know that in his early experiments, it was about 20% mm, mortality from infection. Uh, and so here's the thing is, going. yeah, he, he, he didn't really have a great idea about what kind or how much electricity to pump into the brain. So we just kind of, I mean, you, you learn from experimenting, right? And he didn't know exactly where to stick the electrode. So again, you learn from experimenting. And so sometimes the results reported were actually quite good. And 
there's some question as to the value of his data. We'll get to that a little bit later. But sometimes people that were mentally ill reported great relief from this therapy. And sometimes the patients had convulsions, or as we discussed, die of infection. Or instead of making them feel good, it instilled a deep sense of generalized terror and fear. Sometimes it spiked their blood pressure so that they had mini strokes. Sometimes they developed uh, cardiac arrhythmias because, you know, you're zapping their brain with electricity. And there are apparently videos of these experiments. I was not able to find any of these videos online, and I don't know if I'd want to see them. But the experiences documented in these videos that I've read descriptions of are horrifying. I, uh... So he did this many, many times to many, many patients over many, many years. I don't know exactly how long he did this or how many people he did this, but it was a lot. And it wasn't just for schizophrenia. And this is where probably his most controversial, by modern standards, experiments came in. Because he realized that if he could program the brain to experience pleasure when you push a button, if he could pinpoint where that pleasure button was, you could modify people's behavior by in a kind of like a, like a Skinner box, like a rat with a, a lever that dispenses heroin kind of way, basically like a brain orgasm is how it's been described. Uh. So back at that time, the mainstream medical opinion was that homosexuality was a mental illness. Now, of course, we, nowadays it is not considered a mental illness. Nowadays it's considered a benign variation in human sexuality, the same way that having red hair is a benign variation in hair color, right? We never say that because people have red hair, that they have a pathological hair color, even though you sunburn more easily, you need more anesthetic, nobody's ever going to call having red hair a disease. Similarly, homosexuality is not a disease, it's a simple variation. And even though homosexual behavior does have different health outcomes than heterosexual behavior does, still not a disease, just a variation, benign. But at the time in the 50s and 60s, it was still considered to be a mental illness. And many physicians at the time, many psychiatrists at the time, tried to cure it. Now, it's easy today to judge them. And what they were doing was, as it turns out, incorrect. It's tough to say that it was unethical or evil, though, because they were using the best information they had available at the time. And it wasn't until later that the attitudes about homosexuality changed and were corrected. So it was not in my opinion, intrinsically unethical for Dr. Heath at the time to try to cure homosexuality as if it were a disease, as if it were a mental illness. But how he did it is an entirely different story. Uh, I feel like this whole story is just going to be me groaning in the background. Oh, I mean, this story only gets worse, Nancy. It doesn't get better. I'm sure it, it does. It just gets bad and bad and bad and bad and bad. All right, so there was a young patient who was under arrest on a marijuana charge who had some degree of mental illness. So he was reported as having what we would now call probably a, a major depressive disorder, right? He was depressed and he had some schizophrenic tendencies. He was also uh, preferentially homosexual and he fantasized only about men and he wanted to only have sex with men. He was incarcerated for marijuana possession whether he joined this experiment voluntarily or not is a subject of some debate. He would later say that he felt pressured into it because you know, basically he was in jail and this was a way out of jail. And if he didn't do it, he would be punished. However, 
physicians that were involved in the study said that he actually begged to be in the study. He wanted to be cured, quote unquote, of his homosexual tendencies. So there is some debate as to which one is true. I might have an opinion as to which one is true, but uh, speaking objectively, I guess, we, we can't say one way or the other, right? Yeah. So uh, this, this guy was, was 24 years old, this patient. Uh, and his name has not been published as far as I know. They call him patient B19. He was also uh, a, a drug addict on like amphetamines, LSD, marijuana, and he was an epileptic. So he had a lot of stuff going on. Am I right? And he was arrested. For, so he was arrested for marijuana possession, but he was, he was arrested on. for marijuana possession. Yep. And yep. he was on all these other drugs. Okay. He was also, yes. I mean, he was using all those other drugs. I don't know if he was on them. Okay. I uh, gotcha. So they jammed a bunch of electrodes in his brain, I think nine. And then they gave him the button that let him pump electricity into it. And so every time he pressed the button, he would get a jolt of what he described as euphoria uh, and pleasure. And so for a while, they just let him push the button as much as he wanted. And as much as he wanted was a lot, about 500 times an hour. Oh, God. Because if you could have 500 orgasms an hour, wouldn't you? Right? What else do you have to do, especially if you're in jail? I guess so. And then when they took the button away from him, when they disconnected his electrodes, he would, he would beg for more. We definitely would recognize this nowadays as addictive behavior. So they got him addicted to zapping his own brain with electricity. Then they showed him porn, heterosexual porn specifically. And they zapped his brain every time he watched heterosexual porn in an effort to kind of associate heterosexual behavior with this pleasurable stimulation. But and he had already been zapping himself prior to this? Yes, correct. Oh, and there was a control. Before they did the thing in his brain, they made him watch heterosexual porn and he was grossed out by it. Okay. I mean, I guess if he's already giving himself the positive uh, response, though, it's, I, I question whether or not it would be strictly associated with heterosexual uh, pornography if he was already... Yes. This is one of the many flaws of this experiment. Okay. You are correct. And the doctors reported that, lo and behold, he started to really like heterosexual porn, and he would uh, masturbate to orgasm while watching heterosexual porn, and then, you know, there's after his brain was pleasure as a reward. So then... Heath goes to the attorney general of Louisiana and says, we want special dispensation to hire this guy a prostitute. You're not serious. I am 100% serious. Oh, my God. So Heath sent one of his med students out to uh, find what he called a lady of the evening, sex worker, street sex worker, and paid her 50 bucks and said, this is going to be weird, but here's what we need you to do. And patient B-19 did, in fact, have sex with this woman and was declared cured. He's cured of his homosexuality. Mm. Mm -mm. Right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call foul on that. Yeah, yeah. Follow-ups with patient B-19 have been hard to come by, but there were a couple follow-ups. And, you know, wouldn't you know it, it, it did not affect. He was, he was still homosexual afterwards. <sighs> and this was... Probably not even close to the, the least ethical thing that Robert Gilbert did. He experimented. Uh, he was part of MK Ultra, which if you don't know what that is, it's going to sound like a crazy made-for-TV movie conspiracy theory. It was a 100% real research project by the United States government experimenting on very often its own citizens without consent to test the limits of the human mind, essentially, and body uh, by doing things like giving random people LSD and not telling them they're doing it, for example. Uh, he 
conducted psychoactive tests on prisoners where he'd give prisoners to drugs like LSD and then just document how they freaked out. He injected horseradish into somebody's brain to see if you could use horseradish as a delivery mechanism for drugs. What, can't. what brought him to that hypothesis? That one, I don't know. That was just kind of like a side note in one of his biographies. Okay. But I was meant to demonstrate how wide-ranging his interests were. Okay. He came up with this mysterious protein called Taraxian. Taraxian is also the name of an, uh, an alien in Star Wars, I'm pretty sure. This is not that. This is something different. Hi, all. Mike from the future here. To my eternal shame, Taraxian is not a Star Wars alien. Talaxian is a Star Trek alien. Curse my metal body. It's all my fault. And he said that Taraxian was what caused schizophrenia. If you took Taraxian out of a person with schizophrenia and injected it into somebody's brain who didn't have schizophrenia, the person who didn't have schizophrenia would get it. Here's the thing, though. No such thing. Yeah. Nobody was ever able to replicate his Taraxian experiments. Plenty of people tried because it, was like, it would have been like a Nobel Prize winning discovery. You know, we discovered what causes schizophrenia. But literally nobody could could replicate it. Plenty of people tried. Even the, his students were like, oh, no, we just did it to please him. I, I want to be clear, even for the time, this guy was way out there. It was a different time. Yes, experimentation and ethical standards were a lot laxer than they are now. But even for the time, psychiatrists around America were going like, okay, hang on, you did what? He was banned from receiving any federal funding whatsoever because the National Institute of Mental Health, as in the rats of... It is four years since our departure from him, and our world is changing. We're like, no, this guy's a, he's a, he's a wackadoo. Except he did help a lot of people, and that's the problem. Is he was right, because he was brilliant, he was right often enough that it was very difficult to, to dismiss him 100% completely out of hand. He did perform psychosurgery on people that claimed that he cured them completely. He did help a lot of suicidal people. That was another interest of his, was being able to psychoanalyze people with suicidal tendencies. And a lot of them reported that he saved their lives. He very famously went onto the roof of the school where he worked to talk down a suicidal student, and he succeeded. Yeah. So he was right often enough that it made the rest of the stuff that he did seem credible. And here's the thing. There were a lot of people around him that believed in him, too. His medical students, many of them, in fact, most of them, believed in him wholeheartedly. He had medical students that were gay that reject emphatically the proposal that he was in any way homophobic. Well, I, I, I guess I can sort of see that and that he was, again, we talked a little bit about doctors being the product of the culture in which they exist in. And he might not have believed that personally, but he was living in a culture where homosexuality was seen as an illness, even if right. he did not believe that himself, the dominant culture of his existence did so. So, yeah. And, and it's not like there are other, other people, at, especially in the South at the time, weren't viciously racist and doing widely irresponsible experiments as well. Right. So he was extreme for his time, but by, by no means the worst. Yeah. It's a grim, yeah. grim time. But though he may not have been homophobic, he was, he was deeply racist, as many men of his time were. And it's not an excuse, just an explanation. Mm -hmm. A uh, student of his or a colleague of his once reported that he preferred to use, I'm going to say black people. The word he used was not black people. Uh, preferred to use black people over cats because it was cheaper to use black people because they were everywhere and he had easy access to them. 
And I, I'm, I'm assuming he's referring to people who were in the prison system and in the mental health system. One would assume, yeah. Because oh, yeah, they were just, just around. Now, the, the history of, of just racism in America in psychiatry against Black people goes back to the very beginning of America. Benjamin Rush, who was one of the founders of the College of Physicians where, uh, of Philadelphia, where, where Nancy and I work, he gets a lot of flack for coming up with a disease called uh, negritude. There are two things called negritude. The second one is a mid-20th century Afro-Francophone uh, social movement. We're not talking about that. N negritude was Benjamin Rush's rhetorical device to describe blackness as a disease. I want to be clear. I, I don't personally believe that Benjamin Rush thought that this was a real disease. A lot of people nowadays treat it at face value, like he was saying that being black was like having leprosy. It was a rhetorical device that he used. He was an, actually an ardent abolitionist. He did found the first anti-slavery society in America. He used negritude as a rhetorical device to point out how absurd it was, not because he actually believed as a psychiatrist that, that blackness was like leprosy. However, there were plenty of American psychiatrists that did uh, come up with just ridiculously racist, fake mental illnesses to describe black people. The most prominent of which was the infamous Dr. Samuel Cartwright of Louisiana. Though he was in Louisiana in the 1850s, his legacy carried on well into Dr. Galbraith East time. Cartwright came up with the two very famous slave diseases, drapetomania, which was the disease that caused slaves to try to escape, oh. the cure for which was whipping, and also dysesthesia ethiopica, which was the disease that made not just slaves, but also any black people lazy. And the cure for that, you want to guess? More whipping. More whipping. That was, yeah, yeah. And these were two mental illnesses that were treated as serious, at least in the South at the time, and sort of justified the inhuman treatment of enslaved peoples, primarily, of course, black enslaved peoples. And then after emancipation, suspiciously, a lot of laws were passed and a lot of practices were instituted where slavery was technically illegal. But, you know, if you declare somebody as being dangerously insane in the idiom of the time, a lunatic or an idiot, what we would now call mentally ill, you can institutionalize them forever. And if you institutionalize them forever, you can do whatever you want to them, including making them work for you for free. So, for example, in Georgia, there was an amazing uptick in sanity among black people in Georgia. Correction, obviously I meant insanity, not sanity. Sorry. After 1860. Wow, so so convenient. Yeah, because freedom, and this is a quote from a psychiatrist at the time, freedom removed all hygienic restraints and they, meaning former slaves, were no longer obedient to the inexorable laws of health. In other words, freedom made them crazy. There's a famous case in North Carolina for what is then called the Eastern Asylum for the Colored Insane. In 1925, there was a young black man, 17-year-old, named Junius Wilson, who was accused of rape. However, he was not convicted of rape because he was determined to be mentally ill. So instead, mm -hmm. he was castrated and remanded for indefinite incarceration to this facility, the Eastern Asylum for the Colored Insane. Over 50 years later, they dropped the rape charges against him. Well, and that didn't undo all of the medical procedures that, and the castration that were carried out on him. And they didn't let him go. They just dropped the rape charges against him. Oh, and, great. And they realized that he wasn't actually mentally ill. He was just 
deaf. Seriously? Perfectly normal. Just deaf. Yeah. Well, and this this brings in that lovely intersection of, uh, you know, there's obviously discrimination against people of color in this country for a very long time, but also, you know, people with disabilities have many types of challenges and discrimination in their life. And this guy... Very much so. ...drew that lucky card of having both. And God. Yeah. Oh, he didn't... He, they still didn't let him go, though. Yeah. Uh, but in 1994, when uh, Wilson was 86 years old, they moved him out of the cells, out of the basically the, the high security area, into a cottage. Oh, that makes up yep. for it, right? Yeah. Yeah. He was 86 years old. He'd been in prison since 1925. They still didn't let him go, but they let him move into a cottage on the grounds of the, of the facility. <sighs> and he died, I think, in his mid-90s. So he lived in a cottage for almost 10 years. Yeah. Oh, right. I mean, I, I could go on and on, right? Like the Alabama Ooh. Insane Hospital, quote-unquote, had a, a colony of about 100 uh, black men who were, their diagnosis was that they're mentally ill. The treatment was hard labor. Huh. And for yeah. who, I wonder? Yeah. They, they worked on a plantation at hard labor. That was the treatment for their mental illness. Look, I could go on for like three hours on this. Just yeah. this, this sort of parallel reality of they're not slaves. They're just crazy. Yeah, it's like the ultimate gaslighting, if you think about it. Well, and here's the thing is, some of these inmates, some of these patients probably were mentally ill, right? And of course, they're not getting treatment. They're just being further exploited. Yeah, yeah, they're just being enslaved. It's just the worst. It's the worst. And so this is the environment in Louisiana at the time. It wasn't as bad in 1950 or 60 as it was in 1850 or 60, but it wasn't good. Yeah. Sorry, that was uh, I got a little I got a little head up there, a little heated. If you could see me right now, I just need you to picture me staring into the middle distance, trying not yeah. to like run outside and just punch the air. Well, and here's the thing: is that the vast majority of Galbraith Heath's colleagues said that he was fanatically devoted to the well-being of his patients. That all he cared about, his singular obsession, was curing mental illness. I mean, would you agree with that based on what you've read or, I mean, it, it sounds like he, yes and no, it's, yes it sounds no. like he had that kind of academic compartmentalization thing where he didn't view yep. these people as human anymore. So I think that he didn't think that there were any problems with what he was doing because it was for the greater good. Mm-hmm. I think he was deeply self-righteous. I thought he was helping people and, you know, omelets, eggs, got to break them. I also think that he was staggeringly intelligent. I think he was a legitimate, brilliant polymath genius. I also think that made him staggeringly arrogant. And he could not see the massive holes in his experimental protocols, and he could not see the self-deception in which he was engaged. That patients were basically just doing what they knew he wanted them to do in order to please him, because he had complete power over them. Were they cured, or were they just trying to please the guy that's sticking electrodes into your brain and, and and so gets to tell, say whether or not you're released into the world or you get to be in prison for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. I don't know. He was a very controversial figure, ultimately deeply unethical, ultimately, I think, monstrous. But I don't think that he thought he was a bad guy. I don't think that he was committing atrocity for the sake of atrocity. I really think he thought he was doing it for the greater good. Mm-hmm. And just he wasn't. He yeah. just wasn't. And the sad thing is, is that as advanced for the time that some of his theories were, as radical as they were, as many people that he helped, and even though he was right about a lot of things, 
it turns out that sticking electrodes in people's brains and zapping them doesn't help a lot of people very often. Mm-hmm. You know, there are very specialized circumstances in which electrical stimulation of the brain can help. But by and large, what he was doing caused much more harm than good. As you mentioned earlier, all the deaths by infections, the fact that it was inaccurate, the fact that it turns out zapping your brain with electricity 500 times in an hour is very bad for your brain. Yeah. Also, now we have pharmaceutical interventions for a lot of these diseases like schizophrenia. So you can take a pill instead of having electrodes shoved in your brain. That's probably better. And also now we know there isn't just one cause or one type of schizophrenia. It's like a, it's a wide ranging disease. He, just was, he was just wrong. He was just wrong way too often. He did pass away in the 90s, 1999, in fact. So he's no longer with us. Nowadays, his legacy is seen as mostly negative, but even through into the 80s and, and even in the early 2000s, because he had such a charismatic following among his colleagues, there are people that were standing up for him. And you probably still find him to this day still standing up for him. I was going to ask if he changed his stance on any of his... Uh any of his hypotheses, given the kind of developments that he probably saw over his lifetime, but it doesn't sound like he did. You know, I, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So I can't say for sure he did not, but I wasn't able to find any instances Mm -hmm. of him saying, Oh, I was wrong. You know, he abandoned some of his fields of research. Okay. And was that a tacit acknowledgement that he was wrong about him? Yeah, maybe. Sure. Yeah. But you can't work off of any assumptions unfortunately no but i wasn't able to find anything that you know where he specifically said oh yeah i was totally wrong about that deep brain stimulation thing oh goodness deep brain stimulation does work sometimes for some things so he wasn't completely wrong about sticking electrodes into people's brains people with uh, parkinson's or essential tremors deep brain stimulation improves uh, their symptoms dramatically like it's like an on or off switch sometimes it's an approved treatment for major depression for obsessive compulsive disorder it can help with epilepsy but not the way he did it yes i think that's a good distinction to make i mean was his research fundamental to a lot of these modern therapies yeah probably it probably was he probably did contribute positively to this field of study in general but the way he did it was just Mm -hmm. evil just deeply evil Well, and I think that this is kind of a part of a larger uh, issue of bioethics that is something that we confront fairly regularly at the museum with some of our collections. But it's it's such a difficult thing because there are doctors out there who will be quick to defend these these physicians who did these horrible things because it set up um, foundation for the rest of this research that has meant so much to so many people. And I think a good example of this, I I can't remember the name of the paper, but um, there was a paper written about uh, why physicians should not be using a particular book of anatomy called Pernkoff Anatomy. Yeah, Uh, I was thinking about that myself. uh, Anyone who's not familiar, Pernkoff Anatomy is a a series of anatomical texts that were created. They have beautiful detailed illustrations. However, these illustrations and this work was done off of people executed at Nazi death camps. So, you know, on the one hand, these illustrations are extremely accurate, extremely detailed, extremely reliable, but they were done off of people who were executed for, for no reason, uh, effectively. My grandmother is a medical librarian at Temple University Hospital for a long time. And so she gave me copies of Pernkoff Anatomy because she did not feel that they should be destroyed. 
but she also gave me a paper about the moral quandary of people who take a Hippocratic oath to do no harm using resources like this Mm -hmm. that came at the expense and the harm of an unknowable number of people. Let me ask you this question. Assuming that these anatomy books are the best anatomy books out there, which many people believe that they are, or at least at the time they were, Mm -hmm. especially before photographical and anatomical analysis, right? Assuming they were the very best available and the most accurate, if somebody was doing surgery on your grandmother, would you want them to have used those or the second best anatomical analysis? That's a, that's, a, that's a really difficult question to answer, right? Mm-hmm. Last episode, we talked about Marion Sims, who experimented on immigrants and slaves without their consent, without anesthesia. It is undoubtable, 100% undoubtable, that Marion Sims' direct research and the research that built upon what he did saved innumerable women's lives. And yet, the way he got there was so incredibly monstrous. And I think it's a question of how do you quantify that cost? You know, you can't. And that's, uh, you know, a difficult thing to have to have to confront. And it's something that we have to confront all the time when discussing medical history. And I would encourage people who are maybe kind of new to this interest or new to a lot of this information to think about what this means to you and, um, you know, proceed based on that. Because, again, there is no right answer and there's no way to quantify a lot of these things. We can't undo a lot of these things. We can at least acknowledge the exorbitant amount of privilege we have as people in the West, and especially those of us who are white people in the West, to not have had to go through these horrendous experiences and get the kind of the services rendered from our, uh, you know, our predecessors. It is a, it's a tough thing to think about. And that's why I said this topic was kind of a downer. Why did I bring this guy up? Well, J.K. Rowling, author of the Harry Potter series, has made some waves recently for promulgating a philosophy of trans-exclusionary radical feminism, that particular brand of kind of old-school second-wave radical feminism that is very, very concerned about how uh, trans women don't exist. Strangely enough, they don't say much about trans men, and they don't really appreciate that trans is a label that applies to all kinds of non-conforming gender identifications or gender identities, I should say. But boy, they're super concerned about how trans women aren't real. It's just men trying to look up girl skirts or like molest children or something. I, I don't know. She's devoted to this philosophy. And even though it has garnered her widespread criticism, she keeps doubling and tripling, quadrupling down on it. Well, her pen name for her mystery, her adult mystery novel, is Robert Galbraith. Do I think that J.K. Rowling picked this name specifically because this guy tried to zap homosexuals in the brain with electricity to quote-unquote cure them? Probably not. Robert Galbraith is not an extremely uncommon name. I mean, it's not super common, but I believe, Nancy, you have Galbraiths in your family tree, don't you? Yes, my grandmother's maiden name is Galbraith. It's a pretty common Scottish name. But anyway, that is her pen name. And sort of the juxtaposition of the fact that she is anti-trans with the fact that this doctor, Robert Galbraith Heath, tried to affect a medical cure for homosexuality is, gosh, it's just such a strange connection, even though I think it's probably unintentional. Did you hear her her pen name and kind of have this moment of your blood running cold? Because understanding kind of the gravity that that name holds, I right. would be horrified to hear it in use casually from anyone else. 
And again, I obviously I have my own personal opinions on the subject of kind of gender identity and validity. Sure. But I, I think it's worth saying that scientifically today in 2020, it is not considered an illness to be homosexual. It is not considered an illness to be transgender or gender nonconforming. And there have been a number of studies that, that show that uh, gender uh, confirmation surgeries or just living as your preferred gender has an overwhelmingly positive effect on people versus kind of the mental anguish of trying to conform to gender identities that don't suit you. And again, I know that there are people out there who are going to have a lot of opinions, but the science on this is clear and right. you're still entitled to your opinion, but science does not care about your opinion. And you're entitled you're, to your own opinion. You're not entitled to your own facts. That's a good way to put it. A lot of this kind of trans-exclusionary radical feminist uh, argument is, you know, as you said, perverted men wanting to look up women's skirts. And I would encourage everyone to look at the incidences of inappropriate behavior amongst trans women and compare that to a control body, say, maybe incidences of inappropriate behavior in bathrooms amongst you know, maybe American senators. And I think you will be surprise, surprise, surprise. At which party has committed more bathroom infraction? All right, look, we're getting far afield. Also, I want to say that uh, J.K. Rowling, writing as Robert Galbraith, wrote a mystery novel that heavily featured the lyrics of the band Blue Oyster Cult. I am a massive Blue Oyster Cult fan. I have a BOC tattoo. So I do appreciate that. And I enjoyed that novel very much. But it does not excuse any of the rest of the stuff. I just got to stand up for my, my favorite band. I don't know, Nancy, do you have any other questions or can we, can we close the book on this particular topic I think for the we time being? Because I'm kind of down. close the book and ho- open the Unicorn Chaser book because I think yes, please. Let's pop open Unicorn Chasers. I guess uh, you went first. So what is your Unicorn Chaser? Um, unicorn Chaser for this week. So I'm a, I'm a big, uh, big Halloween fan. Wow, Really? I, I know, so you must be so surprised. But I'm, I'm a very big Halloween fan. And my partner surprised me today uh, with a sweater, a festive sweater. I don't know if anyone on the internet here has heard of Untitled Goose Game. Mike, are you familiar with <laughs> yeah, Untitled Goose Game? I am familiar Goose Game? with Untitled Goose Game, yes. Yeah. So in this game, you play as a goose, and your job is to basically sow chaos. Uh, You are given tasks such as force child to buy back his own toy. You need to make a gardener stub his toe at one point. You're just a goose ruining people's day. And so my partner surprised me with with a crew neck sweater of the goose from Untitled Goose Game dressed as a witch. And it says, Honkus Ponkus. And so <laughs> that's amazing. It's it's pretty delightful. And so I will be uh wearing that for the remainder of the spooky season. Please and thank you. What is your unicorn chaser? I'd like for my unicorn chaser to be my puppy Queequeg, but he got bit in the face and it cost me a ton of money. So he still causes me more angst, even though I do love him and he's very sweet and adorable he's puppy. A dog, man. He's Poor an adventure puppy. puppy. He's nine months old, and he's had a lifetime of adventures already. My unicorn chaser is, uh, the day we're recording this, the early access version of a video game called Baldur's Gate 3 comes out. Of all the video games on the planet, I may have played Baldur's Gate 1 and 2 the very most. These games came out 
in the late 90s, I want to say. And they're a deep, informative part of my adolescence. And Baldur's Gate 3 is finally coming out now, 20 years later. I am downloading it as we speak. It actually just finished downloading. And as soon as we are done with this call, I actually have another Zoom meeting. But then as soon as that's done, I am loading up on the coffee, not the hard coffee, just the regular coffee. And I'm just going to be playing this game pretty much all night long, I'm pretty sure, and well into tomorrow until I have to stop to work. And then as soon as I'm done working, we going back to it. The anticipation of it is enough to be my unicorn chaser. It is, it is so very exciting. Yes, the true excitement. I, I support it. It's nice to have a thing to look forward to. Especially now. Anyway, that is all, I think, for this episode, unless there's anything you need to say, Nancy, before we wrap up. No, no, I don't think so. I think we have just about covered as much as my heart can take. Yes. (laughs) uh, Stay healthy and don't get fossy jaw. Good night. Bye. White phosphorus is bleh.